0: We are starting off the show today with a look at some new information, some new numbers that have been released. First, the first serology test results in BC. They have been made public. Uh, There are a lot of numbers and such swirling around in this paper. So we thought why not bring in Jason Tetro, host of the super awesome science show, to break it all down for us. Jason, thanks so much for agreeing to do that.
1: Oh, no problem at all.
0: Uh, So I've I've looked, I will fully admit I haven't read word for word i think it's 24 pages but the one number that stuck out for me uh, was the 0.55% taking a look at the infection rates in may does that what, what is the importance of that
1: well first off the 0. 0.55 comes in may what we want to do is we want to compare that to what we saw in march before we had the big spike and that number was 0. 0.28 now, what that means is that for every thousand people, uh, about three had some kind of response to COVID-19 coronavirus, which means they probably either had it or they had seen something that was very, very similar to it. Now, when we get to May, after all the work that we did in it to be able to you know, shut everything down, lock it down, et cetera, et cetera, we essentially went up by about Two people out of every thousand. So in other words, that's how many people ended up getting the virus because of those lockdown measures. And that is absolutely amazing. Because when you start looking at some of the other places around the world, their numbers were something like, you know, 10 out of every 100, 5 out of every 100. So British Columbia basically is one magnitude, 10 times lower than that, which is amazing
0: and and that's was the goal you would think when we were being told there's the reason the reasons why we're doing this is it seems like a huge hardship for a lot of people and mm-hmm. both personally professionally for the economy but were these the results were these the results Do you think or do these does this exceed the the expectation
1: oh this exceeds it and you see the thing is um you remember the term uh, flatten the curve mm mm-hmm. mhm yeah, well, what the whole point was is that we had hoped that we would eventually see it essentially going through the community in a way that would be slow enough that we wouldn't overwhelm health care. Remember how we talked about all of that? Mm-hmm. Well, the fact of the matter is, is Dr. Bonnie Henry, who took care of SARS back in 2003, basically had a different perspective, and that was she wanted to stamp it out. And that's essentially what we're seeing in these numbers. We kept everything so low with all the lockdown that we almost got to a point where we would consider it to be eliminated from the population, much like we do with measles. You know, we still see measles cases every now and then, but for the most part, it's eliminated. Well, that's essentially what was going on in British Columbia. Now, the problem is that if you're doing a stamp out like BC has done, then you would hope that everybody around you is doing the same thing. Sadly, all you have to do is look down south of us. That's not the case. So what we need to do now is not only stay in that elimination phase, but we need to somehow find a way to be able to maintain that, knowing full well that everybody around us is not doing the same thing. And that's really the challenge for the future.
0: Uh, Well, and it's also kind of you mentioned measles. Uh, That was something we've seen in BC. Also, in the past few years, we've seen a few flare ups because of that people not vaccinating or people not taking the thinking that measles has been eradicated and we don't have Mm -hmm. to continue with those same measures.
1: Yeah. And and a lot of other places around the world have essentially adopted that measles mentality. Uh, And I'm talking about. Uh, before the vaccine came around in 63. But back in those days, what would happen is everybody would just live normally, and then you'd have a flare-up, a cluster, a boom, if you will, of measles. Everything would get shut down. And it would stay shut down for weeks until the measles was gone. And then they would try and get back to normal. That's essentially what living with the virus means for all those who have been listening. Now, the fact is that you can actually stamp this virus out, We did it with SARS in 2003. It took a heck of a lot of problems and and it hurt Toronto badly. But Dr. Henry has shown us that we can stamp this out. So the fact is... We now have a benchmark, a gold standard as to how to deal with this out of British Columbia, and now it's just up to all the other places in the world to follow suit.
0: And is it also because we're dealing with the virus? And I know there was new uh, study, new information out today as well about just how long, if you do have the antibodies, how long you might have them, or if it's more like a common cold that after a few months you can easily catch it again. Mm-hmm. Because some people might look at this and think, well, maybe we overreacted, and the whole point was to slow it down, so hospitals weren't overwhelmed, but knowing yeah. that a certain amount of the population was going to get the virus. And, and people still talk a little bit about that herd immunity.
1: Yeah, and that was the UK version uh, many, many weeks ago. Um, they, they seem to be returning back to it because essentially they can't stamp it out like uh, BC has done. What, what that essentially is talking about is how you are able to allow the virus to sort of circulate so that people can get either that herd immunity, so there's a whole bunch of people who have it, so it's not going to spread very well, or we have partial immunity. And we do that every year with the flu, okay? We can take the vaccine or we don't take the vaccine, but at the end of the day, people are going to have some kind of partial immunity to the flu. And that's essentially what we're trying, what these other areas are trying to do with the coronavirus. Here's the problem. Now that we're starting to find out that the first line of defense, the antibodies, may not even be, you know, six months in the making in terms of the protection, then that essentially changes the way that we have to look at coronavirus altogether. And many of the vaccines that we currently have out there at the moment may not be what we need. And instead, we'd have to start looking at um, the other branch of the immune system, the secondary branch, what we call the T cell or cellular immunity branch. And that's going to take a few years because we haven't figured that out yet. So the idea of stamping out that BC has done is far more uh, successful and definitely far more um, useful than waiting for a vaccine because it may still be 2022, 2023 before we get back to any kind of normal With a vaccine.
0: And just before I let you go, people might hear this and think, great, to wash my hands of this, we're done, we've done our job. But this is, I'm guessing, based on continuing where we are
1: now. Yeah, we're still at the 65%. And uh, as you know, for the last few days, British Columbia has seen uh, a rise in the number of cases. That is to be expected. We're still in that sort of 20 range, so it's not so bad. But if it gets to 50 or higher, well, then it's going to get out of control again. And that's really where, you know, we have to be absolutely sure that we're doing our best to keep it at 65% or under in terms of our phys- uh, physical distancing and such. And then eventually over time, while everything burns out around the world, it will eventually get back to normal. But for the moment, BC has taken the lead. Um, I would really recommend that everybody, you know, be safe, be kind, be calm, and, and, and continue doing that uh, for the well, for the forthcoming future.
0: All right. Jason, always good to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Take care. Jason Tetro, the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Well, as you know, the Vancouver Park Board has voted voted 4-3 to allow overnight camping in city parks. There are some rules, one being campers must leave first thing in the morning, something that many are questioning if that's really going to happen or not. To talk a little bit more about this, I'm joined by Vancouver City Councillor Jean Swanson. Thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Uh, What is your take on this? I know you've been a a proponent of housing, trying to get more housing, more affordable housing for people, uh, particularly in the city of Vancouver. Uh, You're a city councillor. What is your take on the Park Board's decision to uh, amend the bylaw and allow camping in city parks, but with the certain rules and regulations?
2: Well, I don't think it's going to work to make people pack up and leave every day. I think it's inhumane. I think the real solution is to, for the province and the feds to lease some hotel rooms, offer them to people who are homeless, and then build non-profit housing that everyone can afford. That's what we have to keep pushing for, pushing, pushing. Telling people that they have to pack up and move every day. You know, what if it's raining? What if they're sick? What if they don't have a a means of carrying their stuff. What are they going to do? We're in two pandemics, opioid, poison drugs and COVID. And it's pretty inhumane to force people to do that.
0: Uh, From what I understand the way it works, uh, for people that are currently camped in Strathcona Park, they won't be forced to every day pack up their goods and to move them along. Um, Does it make sense that we have what it seems like now two different rules, and that encampment will continue? But uh, as you said, anybody then that might camp in another park has to be up and moved out by 7 a.m.
2: Jill, nothing makes sense about homelessness. Everybody knows that people who are homeless have about half the life expectancy as other people. Everybody knows, governments know, they did the studies that say it's cheaper to end homelessness than to maintain it, but nobody's doing it. Nothing is logical about this. We need to get the housing for people. It should be part of any kind of COVID recovery plan. And that's where we need to put our energy. And until that happens, I think we have to treat people with humanity. And dignity.
0: You mentioned hotels, which is something the city has done as far as the couple of of sites in Vancouver. That was what happened the first time the Oppenheimer camp years ago was taken down. They went, I believe it was the Bosman Hotel that people were able to transfer to. It seems like even when there is this move to purchase a hotel or lease a hotel and get those rooms, as we've seen during the pandemic, that still doesn't really provide uh, an end-all solution to the problem.
2: No, well, we have over 2,000-counted homeless people, and COVID has showed that we actually probably have a lot more. And we have welfare rates that are too low to eat and pay the rent. So if you lose your job and you have to go on welfare, you're pretty much going to be homeless if you don't have a good support system because welfare rates just aren't high enough. We also have SRO hotels, about 4,500 units the last stop before homelessness and they're being rapidly gentrified you know the arno the avalon the persepolis they're all being gentrified right now and that's only and that means that as soon as somebody moves out or is evicted the rents are doubled or tripled so they become lost the low-income community so in order for us to deal with homelessness we have to deal with not only getting housing for people who are currently homeless homeless but also stopping other people from becoming homeless. And we could do that if we had vacancy control in SRO hotels, which the city has been calling for since 2014, and um, if welfare rates were higher, which the city has also been calling for.
0: We heard from some of the residents currently living in Strathcona Park, and we were talking about this yesterday, and some were quick to say, just because we hear a voice doesn't mean that voice talks for everybody or speaks for everybody, uh, which is true. But one of the residents stood up and gave a list of demands, and the demands included things like $2,000 a month, alcohol, tobacco, a safe supply of drugs, and also uh, housing that was at minimum 600 square feet per unit, uh, single person to to each self-contained unit, I got a lot of calls on that saying a lot of people would love those things. You don't you don't just get those things handed out. Do you think when we hear a message like that it kind of dilutes the the real problem or it turns people away from wanting to try and find those solutions?
2: So I don't want, I'm not a communications expert, and I don't want to go around advising people who are homeless on what kind of communication strategy they should use. I think the point is that we desperately need housing that low-income people can afford, and we need to stop the drivers of homelessness, which are no vacancy control and really low welfare rates.
0: Uh, there was. It wasn't that long ago. We were focused a lot on modular housing. Did, do you think modular housing has made an impact, or it's
2: something that we need more of? Definitely, it's great, and you can uh, put a foundation in, and it can be permanent. And I know lots of people who have gotten in, and they feel like they've won the lottery. Um, but they're great. We need, we need more. Uh, a couple years ago, the city gave Vancouver 600 units. When I got elected, I got a motion in that we should try for 600 more. We still haven't, and it's been almost two years. Um, the city or the province only put 200 units of modular housing in its budget last year for the whole province. We could use 600 a year for Vancouver. If we had 600 a year for Vancouver for three years and we had higher welfare rates and vacancy control in the SROs, we could get a handle on this and people wouldn't be sleeping in the streets. And the businesses wouldn't be crying and the residents wouldn't be saying, oh, our parks are, there's homeless people in our parks and all that stuff. We could solve that problem.
0: Uh, And just before I let you go, I know at Park Board, uh, your COPE counterpart also voted against this idea, the bylaw amendment. I'm not asking you to speak for him, but do you know, was it also because of the reasons you put forward that this isn't a solution for homelessness?
2: I think he didn't like the idea of people having to pack up every every night. Yeah. All right.
0: Uh, Councillor Swanson, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much, though, for being available and for talking today.
2: Okay. Thank you so much for being interested, Jill. Bye-bye. That is Councillor
0: Jean Swanson. She's a Vancouver City Councillor. Well, we have been talking a lot about employment during this global pandemic. Employees' rights, the changing face, uh, where you might work has changed. More people working from home, uh, people wondering what rights they have, wage cutbacks, you name it. And today, the the Unite Here Local 40 union has put out a news release. They're very concerned about what they say is the Pan Pacific Hotel in Vancouver trying to get workers there to sign away their current working conditions and to become casual all on-call staff members rather than the permanent workers that they are. And in one of the letters that was shared, the personal information was hidden, but in the letter that was shared uh, it starts off by saying, as you are aware our business is facing unprecedented and ongoing challenges due to the impact of COVID-19. As you are a valued employee, we wish to keep you in the organization and maintain your employment in these difficult times despite not having the same volume of work as we previously did. According Accordingly, we propose to change your terms and conditions of employment to that of a casual employee in consideration of the terms set out below. And then there are six terms saying that the conditions of employment as a casual employee would commence on July 19th. So is this legal? Let's bring in Lior Samfiro, partner and national practice leader, labour and employment law at Samfiro Tamarkin LLP. Lior, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joe. Uh, I just read part of the letter, then there are conditions. So just a uh, face value, knowing uh, what uh, you've heard about this, is this something that companies uh, are allowed to do?
3: Well, here's the thing, Jill. An employer, let's start with the idea that an employer can let an employee go pretty much at any time as long as severance is paid. So this hotel could have said, employees, unfortunately, we have to let you go. We're going to pay you the severance that, that you're owed, and, and goodbye. They could have done that legally. Well, this employer, this uh, hotel, decided to do something different, to say to their employees, well, instead of letting you go, we're giving you another option, which is to change the terms of employment and become casual, part-time employees. So in that respect, it's not that it's illegal. It's a question of whether or not it's a good idea for the employees to accept. And that's where my concern is. A lot of individuals may not understand They may be better off uh, off actually to be let go than to accept this because, number one, if they accept this, now this becomes the new terms of employment and the hotel never has to reinstate them back to the old terms. And number two, and perhaps more importantly, is if they accept this and the next day they are let go, they will be getting a fraction of the severance. That they would be getting if they simply decided to not accept this and have their employment terminated now. So they're better off to be terminated now not having accepted these changes than later on after they've accepted them.
0: And I guess the, the thought process there, too, is you would like to think that the hotel is doing this in good faith in that what they're saying is true. That we know that tourism has taken a huge hit and that this is the solution that they've come up with to keep the employees, that they're not going to change status and then let them all go. But you're right. You have no way of knowing that if you sign this agreement, right?
3: Well, absolutely not. You, you hope and you believe that they're doing it in good faith. But I, I will say this, that if their intention, if their intention was to save a lot of money in by way of severance, that would be a way to do that. Let's have these individuals agree to these changes. Then, at some point, let them go. We've just saved a lot of money in, in severance. So, if that was the intention, it's certainly a way to do that. Not a not an ethical or a proper way, which is why I certainly would urge caution to these individuals uh, to be very, very sure if you want to do that. Understanding you could potentially be giving up more than just your current terms of employment.
0: so if you were, say, an employee uh, say an employee at this hotel, you've worked there for fifteen years. you get this letter that says, because of the pandemic, we want you to go to a casual employee status. You go to a casual employee status, say, for six months, and then you're let go. Your severance then doesn't count. Does it not count the the fifteen years before that?
3: Well, you're going to be getting a significantly reduced severance. Number one, one of the things that this document does is it it limits their future severance explicitly. And also casual employees, part-time employees would be getting less severance because they're earning less. than than regular full-time employees. So it could mean the difference of tens of thousands of dollars in severance, the difference between getting it now versus getting it, say, six months from now. We're not talking about, well, you know, six weeks pay instead of eight weeks. We're talking about potentially tens of thousands of dollars. So, you know, would I do something like this? Would I agree to it? No, I would rather be terminated now and get my full severance rather than risk later on getting tens of thousands of dollars less.
0: And I think it's, there's uh, eight conditions in total that I see. Number seven, I think, is what you're talking about, where it says your employment as a casual employee may be terminated by providing only the minimum entitlement, if any, required by applicable employment standards legislation.
3: That is exactly right. So individuals have two sources of termination entitlements, employment standards legislation and what we call our common law. So what this asks them to do is to give up that second source, the common law source, which is really the bulk of your termination entitlements come from that. And to be, to essentially be limited to the minimum entitlements, which is a week's pay per year of service. So something like that for these employees or for anyone that agrees to it could, could absolutely cost tens of thousands of dollars at some point. Uh,
0: So is it possible that, that, And again, we hope that they're being above board and doing this because companies think this is the only option. But is it also possible, like you said, even though the more attractive option here for the employee is probably to take that severance and go. At the same time, if you're a hospitality worker and we are continuing to be in this pandemic, the severance is only going to last so long. And you would have concerns probably and worries about finding work somewhere else.
3: Correct, although the, the way I would look at it is this. They're going to be earning very less, presume, or very little, I should say, with this new casual part-time. So the way that I would look at it if I were them is, am I better off getting my severance, not my full severance, and then finding even a minimum wage job somewhere else? doesn't even have to be in the hospitality industry. You probably would be better off financially than making very, very little money here, not getting your severance, so I, I think that those are the considerations or some of the considerations that these employees should, uh, should keep in mind.
0: In, the, in the, the letter as well, it says the rate of pay will be $24.40 40 an hour, which for many people, I think, w- would seem like a decent wage. But then it's also the details saying your hours of work and schedule will be variable based entirely on the needs of the hotel. So you could, I, s- I suppose, go from being working five days a week to even though the wage probably seems fine, if you get shifted down to one day a week, there's nothing you could do about that.
3: Exactly. One day a week, one day every two weeks. You know, I, I can pay someone $1,000 an hour, but if I never actually have them coming into work, that, that becomes meaningless. So it's the same thing here. There's no guarantee of hours. In fact, they're being told, don't expect hours. It's in our discretion. You're going to be on call. Sometimes we may call you into work. I think for a lot of these it, it employees having a consistent job, that even if it pays them less than $24 an hour, but it's regular hours, hours that they can count on, plus getting their full severance that may be more attractive than agreeing to a term that puts your severance at risk and also means you don't know when you're working how much you're earning it's really no way to work or live
0: but companies must not think that this is going to lead to a mass resignation because they don't want to pay out the severance either so what is it what is the end game do you think then by the companies here
3: well, I think a lot of uh, companies may assume and often correctly assume that individuals may not appreciate the extent of their rights, that individuals will accept not understanding that there is a different or a better option, uh, and, and oftentimes that is the case. Individuals accept terms that compromise their entitlements because they don't know any better and, and they don't necessarily know that there's an option too. Uh, so, I understand that, though, from the company's perspective, they certainly are, and as many employers are now, in difficult financial situations, and they're trying to make ends meet, and it does no one any good to push a company to the point of bankruptcy, because that does mean that there is no entitlement and no payment for anyone so it, there has to be some sort of a balance here between employee rights and understanding the economic realities of companies, especially during the uh, pandemic. Uh,
0: if an employee signs this and has a change of heart, do they have any way of going back?
3: Not really, no, unless you do that immediately. And I, I do mean immediately the same day. No, once you've signed it, it's something you have to be prepared to, to live with and abide by, uh, and, then, and then you're stuck. And I oftentimes get calls from individuals that, signed some similar documents that they realized in hindsight were very unfavorable. And the answer almost always is, you know, if you signed it, you have to live with it. So be very, very careful before you sign anything, giving up your rights.
0: All right, uh, Lior Samfiru, it's uh, always good to talk to you and uh, have you go through these uh, things with us. Thank you so much for your time today.
3: Thank you, my pleasure.
0: That is Lior Samfiru partner, also a National Practice Leader, Labour and Employment Law with Samfiru to mark an LLP. Well, some new research, it was put out by Research Co., it is asking people about gun violence and whether or not they perceive it as a serious problem in Canada. Many of those that responded to the online survey, about 63% said that they believe gun violence in Canada is a very serious or a moderately serious problem. Uh, there were also asked about carrying a gun a firearm for the purpose of self-defense that's something that's not allowed in Canada not sure if people answering the survey knew that or know that but most people agreed that it should not be allowed that you could carry a firearm for the purpose of self-defense in this country to talk a little bit more about this Rod Giltaka joins me he is with the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights thanks so much for being with us
4: Thanks for having me, Joe. Uh,
0: any surprise at all that 63% of Canadians, according to this survey, said that they think gun violence is serious or
4: moderately serious? Well, it's not a surprise because gun violence in particular, uh, being opposed to the rest of violent behavior that we see in our society, is covered ad nauseum. It's, co- it's, it's, it's covered in a spectacular fashion and it's nonstop. So the idea of, of violence perpetrated with firearms is a, is a serious problem because you know people are being hurt, um, but it's, uh, it doesn't happen anywhere near as often as some people might think. But again, because of the way it's covered, uh, people might think that it happens more often than it does.
0: Uh, there's also the impression, too, and I think a, an important part of the story is when we're talking about gun violence, we're not talking for the most part about legal, law-abiding citizens that own firearms. We're talking about people who have acquired them somehow illegally or using them uh, in a very illegal
4: way. Yes, that's absolutely correct. 99.99% um, of the uh, of the time, it's, it's people that do not have a valid firearms license. It's very rare for people with a firearms license, that was someone that would go through all the trouble and the legal exposure and the liability to obtain and hold a license and then to legally keep their firearms. Um, they, they, it's very, very unusual for anyone like that to break any laws, much less commit violence with them. So again, there's always a connection. Um, the government likes that connection between gun violence and people that would have a firearms license. And their There really is no discernible connection there. So it's very misleading. Uh,
0: The the poll also asked people about this idea, the purpose of carrying guns for the purpose of self-defense, which I I think kind of blurs the lines or almost makes it feel like a question you might ask in the United States or somewhere without the gun laws that we have in Canada. But it seems like people would agree with the current law in Canada, 77% saying that they agree uh, that you shouldn't be able to carry a firearm for self-defense. What's your response to that?
4: Well, another favorite tactic of certainly this Liberal government and, and much of the media, present, com- present company excluded, <laughs> is to conflate issues in the United States, including the reasons why you can have a firearm and what people do with firearms and their codified right to have firearms. They always want to conflate the United States with Canada. And, and those two situations couldn't be more different. Now, when it comes to carrying a firearm for purposes of self-defense, that is something that can happen in Canada. It's something called an authorization Uh, to carry or an ATC. And to my knowledge, it's my understanding that in the entire country of Canada, there are two such permits uh, for the purposes of self-defense. So this is something that uh, virtually no one in the country has. So, uh, you know, it's great that they're asking questions that are irrelevant and and, completely have no purpose because it doesn't happen in Canada. But uh, again, I think it's all part of the effort to to conflate things that happen in the United States uh, with things that may or may not ever happen in Canada in order to drum up support um, for, obviously, the the Liberals' uh, radical gun bans that they've uh, they've instituted recently.
0: Uh, interesting that there's there's only two permits in the entire country, and I'm guessing we don't know the, the actual details, but if I was wagering a guess on this, I would say it was for, I mean, would it be in a scenario like somebody who maybe works alone in a very remote part of the wilderness and the self-defense, it's not as though we have people running around thinking humans are after them, but the self-defense would be against
4: animals? Well, sometimes people do have humans after them, you know, which is, which is an interesting part of the conversation because people talk about uh, the idea that they might be attacked by another person as some kind of ridiculous thing that could never happen. It does happen quite often, right? Aggravated assault. Um, But the majority of the authorizations to carry in Canada, well, virtually all of them, have everything to do with wilderness carry. So loggers and and geologists and people that work in remote areas that work with their hands where it's not practical for them to, to carry a long gun, you can get those wilderness ATCs um, but we're, that uh, I did read the poll, and I think specifically it were it was uh, ATCs for the purpose of, of uh, self defense, personal protection. And again, my understanding is there are two such permits. There was an uh, there was a um, access to information request uh, that was filled uh, recently. That uh, that was the number that uh, came up was two.
0: Um, the poll also asked people about smuggling, and it said more than three in four Canadians, so 77%, believe that taking action to reduce gun smuggling from the United States would either be very effective or moderately effective in curbing gun violence. So what's your response to that?
4: Well, um, that's that's true. Um, smuggled guns are overwhelmingly uh, the way that criminals get their guns in Canada. But, you know, as a gun owner and certainly at the CCFR, we... Gun owners are normal Canadians, right? So, uh, you know, other Canadians need to remember that we want a safer Canada too. So, what we're pushing for is deal with deal with violence because gun violence is just violence, and it, and it's just referring to the tool. There's far more knife violence. There's far more physical violence with blunt objects. There's there's if you if you if you deal with the root causes of violence and you lower violence in your society then everybody wins. And then you don't have to do crazy things like try to take guns from the millions of Canadians who have them that that don't do anything wrong. So work on violence, reduce violence and gun violence will automatically go down.
0: Uh, do you think that though that smuggling guns from the US has been uh, curbed a little bit to even because of the, the border being closed?
4: I really don't know. And the, the problem is, is the government doesn't keep numbers on any of this. And that's what that's what was so ridiculous about the previous claims involving Bill Blair and uh, and back in the day, Ralph Goodale claiming that they knew where, gun, where criminals were getting their guns and the data is nowhere near clear where they are. Um, and then there's there's I have to be very careful because there's some very politically sensitive um, topics out there or or. Ways that criminals are getting guns into Canada that have other implications aside from just somebody smuggling them in their car when they're coming across, saying they went across the border for milk or whatever. Um, but there are, there are ways that guns are coming from the United States en masse, and those methods aren't even being looked at um, by the government because they're politically sensitive. And, and so that's one of the reasons why groups like ours exist to say, you know, get, get back to common sense reduce crime, get a safer society, your gun problem will go away and leave, you know, licensed gun owners alone. Uh,
0: just before I let you go, uh, you mentioned uh, the federal ban and uh, I being a registered gun owner got the letter in the mail with the list, but I'm also hearing from people that the list keeps changing. Is there any more clarity as far as what exactly is banned?
4: There is no clarity. And what we've what we received from the liberals is I don't know if, I, if I would use a, a, a word like unprecedented, but it's it's incredible, it's mind-boggling. Um, the absolute lies that are coming from Bill Blair. Um, one minute he says no shotguns have been banned, the next minute you look and there's there's tens of thousands of shotguns and dozens of actual models of shotguns banned. He says no no firearms used for hunting or sporting purposes are being banned, yet there's hundreds of thousands of those firearms being banned. The RCMP actually put out information contrary to what the, the minister himself says. So Bill Blair, um, there's some, some aspects of what he says. He clearly knows that he's lying because he's embarrassed by it at some level, or I'd like to think he is. Um, and then some things he doesn't understand himself. The, the entire thing is it's far, a far larger of a debacle than any Canadians know. So for, for people, I just came from a gun store and they're like, we still don't know exactly what we can sell. And we asked the chief firearms officer of British Columbia what we can sell. They don't know either. So it is, a, it is an unprecedented, I'll use that word now, unprecedented mess. And I just, I don't know. I, I don't even know what the solution is. But yeah, quite confusing.
5: <laughs> All right. Well,
0: we'll leave it there today. We'll have you back on uh, another day to talk more about that. Rod, thanks so much for your time. Always appreciate it.
2: Thanks anytime.
0: Rod Giltaka is with the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, the Vancouver Park Board voted finally after hearing from about 91 speakers. They voted 4-3 to amend the bylaw that would say People can park or sorry, camp in parks if they have nowhere else to go. But it comes with a number of rules. One being it can only be from dusk until dawn that people camping with it have to move their things out of the public parks. Let's bring in Anna Cooper, a staff lawyer dealing with homelessness with the Pivot Legal Society. Anna, thanks so much for being with us and thanks for having me today. Hello. Hello. Pivot Legal was very involved in the court ruling. This had to do, it was a B.C. Supreme Court ruling, and it had to do uh, with uh, campers in in Abbotsford and this idea of camping in public parks. So does this vote from the Vancouver Park Board, does it really change anything given that we already have that Supreme Court ruling?
6: No, this bylaw doesn't really change anything. I mean, other than the fact that um, the the bylaws that the park order introducing another of uh, her other municipalities policy, introducing, which is kind of strictly overnight, sheltering in parks. Uh, they're constantly framed as um, constitutionally secure, and they're not. They're, they're plausibly defensible, but they're a long shot from secure because they're a long shot from what actually is necessary to save our
5: people.
0: All right, Anna, we're just going to try and get your phone a little bit clearer. And uh, we just couldn't hear your answer uh, great there. So we'll try and, and tinker with things there to get it a, a bit more clear. Uh, so what I, I think you were saying was that this doesn't really change anything. Uh, one of the other questions being asked, though, is that this vote was taken at the same time while in Vancouver. Uh, there is an encampment at Strathcona Park. There certainly are encampments in other parts of Metro Vancouver, the Fraser Valley. Uh, does it have any... Is there any... there? I, and I know the park board is only Vancouver. Uh, what does it say, though, if one encampment is allowed to stay, but this bylaw says, but in every other park... Uh, You can camp overnight, but then you have
6: to pick up and leave. Yeah, so we actually wrote an extensive letter along with the BCCLA and the uh, BC Union of Indian Chiefs to the Park Board in advance of this hearing specifically for this purpose, because any bylaw that is predicated on Daily displacement of homeless people not only undermines their health and safety, but what it means is where people are successful in managing to set up a site uh, on a more permanent basis, it necessarily becomes crowded because it is the only location where people can be without being shoved around. So, you know, if if you only allow people to shelter during the day in one park in the entire city of Vancouver, it, it's understandable that that's where people will go because everybody desperately wants some basic stability in their homes. Whereas if the park board had listened to us and actually spoken to people who are currently sheltering outside and asked them, you know, about a number of locations where people might be able to be, it would take the pressure off of these individual encampments and allow for people to be in different spaces.
0: Uh, But isn't there a challenge, too, in finding spaces? Because every time that happens, people that live in the neighborhood or live near that neighborhood, you would expect this. Say, wait a minute, the park is for everybody. And now there's a camp in the park and, and other people can't use this park. And this isn't really a solution for homelessness.
6: Of course, the solution for homelessness is housing, but there are times where there are crises happening in society, and as we've seen with COVID-19, in some cases, we're able to recognize that safeguarding the greater good and the safety of vulnerable people means all of us make sacrifices. And the fact that most of us understand that our own COVID-19, but we don't understand about homelessness, is deeply indicative of anti-homeless and anti-substance user stigma. The reality is, is this is not a perfect situation, but as long as we are waiting for every level of government to do their part to protect the right to housing, people are going to be stuck living outside and every single one of us should feel like it is part of our responsibility to ensure those people are as safe as possible.
0: And how do you how do people do that, though?
6: So one of the first ways people do it is that when a tent city sets up in their area, they befriend people, they ask what people need. Tent cities are as safe as the community support behind them. When people's needs are met, everything is safer for everyone. And when they reach out to government, they don't reach out in a way that's anti-homeless and asking for people to be displaced. They put pressure on government actors to actually find the long-term housing solutions that would stop this constant cycle of displacement from park to park, community to community, and hearing to hearing. Everybody needs to direct their ire at the public actors who actually have the power to end this, not at homeless people who are overwhelmingly members of extremely oppressed groups in our society who have no power to change the status quo. Uh,
0: it's an interesting idea, and I think people might say even looking at Oppenheimer, which turned into to this large encampment, but th- there was a lot of hostility. I think if there were people, if you went down there in the height of Oppenheimer to befriend people, you might get met with hostility,
6: yeah, I think as in any community, if you show up and people don't know you and you um, don't take the time to build relationships, that can happen. But I and many other people were down there all the time and not experiencing any hostility. Um, if you're showing up in a gentle way and asking people what their needs are and meeting those needs, it's like any other kind of relationship building. Trust takes time. Um and again, with Oppenheimer's perfect example, we reached out to government numerous times saying people want to leave Oppenheimer, they feel like it's too crowded, especially after COVID-19, people would like to go to other parks, and every level of government refused to identify a single other location. They forced people to stay at that one location, and then they used the fact it was crowded as justification for eviction. And we need to be very mindful that that The way tent cities are operating right now is a product of legislation like the bylaw that was just passed.
0: Uh, So do you think it will change anything? Do you think we're now going to see people uh, setting up camps and camping in parks?
6: I mean, the reality is, and this was in the general manager's report, is people are already camping in many parks all across the city for variable lengths of time, depending on how quickly they're enforced against, uh, because they have to sleep somewhere, because people exist and take space. Um, the question is, will this be the first step in the parks board moving forward with injunctions, or is this the first step in the next conversation, which is that bylaw does allow the general manager to appoint some spaces for more than overnight camping, and the question, I think, for everyone is, is that, a, is that a legitimate option that they will consider? You know, when I spoke with um, the general manager before this bylaw was passed, I was told that the reason they hadn't engaged with people who are currently homeless yet is they plan to do that at the implementation stage. Uh, I think the, what I'm wondering at this point is, is that true? Will they actually do that engagement now? And how will that impact how this is actually implemented?
0: All right. Anna Cooper, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. Okay, thank you. Anna Cooper, a staff lawyer at Pivot Legal Society. Well, Canada is facing new pressures to block Huawei from the 5G network. This is something that Ian Young has been writing about. He's the correspondent with the South China Morning Post and joins me now on the line. Ian, thanks so much for joining us.
7: Hi, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about you? Yeah, good, thanks.
0: Uh, you've written a lot about this uh, today as well, some new pressure. So where is the pressure coming from as far as Canada and blocking uh, Huawei from 5G?
7: Yeah, what's happened is that uh, in Britain, um, Boris Johnson's government um, announced that it was going to ban uh, Huawei from uh, from 5G projects. And uh, not only that, it was going to um, purge uh, whatever existing Huawei Hardware was in the 5G infrastructure, and it was going to do that by 2027. Um, by doing that, um, that that kind of leaves Canada out in the cold. Uh, in in so far as it is, Canada is now the only one of the Five Eyes intelligence allies um, who, uh, who who have not, um, at some stage, uh, tried to block Huawei on security grounds uh, from at least part of its high-speed 5G uh, in, internet infrastructure
0: and it would seem strange wouldn't it if canada bucked the trend or went against uh, the rest of the, uh, the the five eyes consortium and and went ahead and and invited huawei in
7: yeah i mean it, it would be strange i mean but but it it seems quite clear that um the federal government is quite resistant to um to making that decision i mean it said um the federal government the the, the liberal government said back in in april last year i think uh, that it would make an announcement on Huawei and 5G uh, before the election, before the October election. Now that didn't happen, and, we've, and, and it hasn't happened since. Uh, and basically, we've been in this kind of holding pattern uh, as as Canada's relations uh, with China have gone down the toilet anyway. You know, and that's courtesy of Meng Wanzhou and um, the extradition battle. So, um, you know, it would be uh, unusual, I think, uh, for Canada not um, uh, to to at some stage soon. Um, uh, come out and and say that it it was banning Huawei from five G projects.
0: Uh, what do you think that would do to the relationship? Because we've seen China be uh, not too pleased, to say the least, with other countries that have taken that stand.
7: Uh, well, there's a couple of different schools of thought. I mean, the the, um, the immediate thought might be that China would retaliate and that China um, would would come somehow come up um, with some way to hit back at, at Canada. Um, but uh, Charles Burton, um, who's a noted commentator on China and has been a counselor at the Canadian embassy in Beijing, um, he, he suggests that uh, part of the problem with Canada's relationship with China right now is that, is that Canada is basically being perceived as weak, and it is because of this perceived weakness um, that Canada's uh, relations with Beijing are in such a bad state. And um, that speaks directly, he says, uh, to um, the failure to get any sort of resolution on the fate of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who are, of course, uh, detained somewhere in China.
0: And I think there was the the thought process, too, that while Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was trying to get that seat on the UN Security Council, he didn't want to ruffle China's feathers any more than necessary and and was playing nicer. But because that dream is now gone, uh, there was some thought that maybe Canada would take a tougher stance, but it doesn't look like that's happened so far, at least.
7: You n- no, it hasn't. Um, I think that, that the fact that London now has, um, uh, has stepped up this pressure. and uh, Previously, Britain had not, taken such a strong stance, and it had had been um, quite noncommittal in terms of coming into line with what the United States wanted, which is um, a prohibition on, on Huawei from five g um, so the the uk's decision this week um, was was somewhat surprising and particularly that that it was in such strongly worded terms that it was going to you know extract. Uh, existing hardware from from its systems and this was going to be a long-term project uh, I, th- I think that that does indeed put a, quite a lot of pressure on Canada uh,
0: what do you think Canada or, or when you were talking as well uh, about this uh, w- with Charles Burton is there an idea on what Canada should do
7: um, well what Charles Burton thinks we should do is um, um, come out and make a statement quite quickly he wants he, he thinks that uh, um, that uh, that canada's relations with china are suffering uh because of that perceived uh, perceived weakness in in canadian policy and he thinks it needs to be made public as well uh, because what we've got right now is sort of an interesting situation where um the situation is kind of resolving itself in a lot of ways uh insofar as the big telecom operators um you know a, a bell and and and, Shaw and um and rogers um uh, are already making decisions that exclude Huawei and part of that I think is because they fear that the rug would be pulled out from underneath them if, if for instance six months down the track um, uh, the federal government does indeed ban Huawei they'll be, they'll, they'll be in a bit of trouble if they've already signed contracts for instance so the situation is indeed resolving itself commercially but um, as far as uh, the geopolitical situation goes, that doesn't really cut it, I don't think, from people like, um, like the Americans uh, who want some sort of statement. it also doesn't make uh, clear to China exactly what Canada's stance is. It's quite ambiguous what Canada's stance is.
0: And, and do you think it is Michael Spavor, Michael Kovrig that, uh, and Meng Wanzhou that are making this more difficult in that the UK can come forward, uh, Australia, New Zealand and say we are not allowing Huawei in our 5G uh, internet infrastructure. But Canada has this very difficult or is in this difficult position with two of its citizens being held hostage in China right now. Do you think that is, is playing into this as to why we haven't heard that statement?
7: Uh, it's possible. Um, I, I think that um, this it, it certainly hasn't helped. Uh, it hasn't helped um, uh, Canada reach a, a resolution on on Huawei, uh, and it's just another very complicated and very contentious consideration. Um, uh, China has shown that it plays the hardest of hardball uh, when it comes to to, to um, its 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 geopolitical relations, um, and I think that it's quite right to see that uh, China is basically engaged in hostage taking. Um, with the case of Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. Uh, and so for Canada to have not really responded in a very forceful way, at least in a policy direction, um, that 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 is quite telling. That is quite striking, I think.
0: Uh, because given what's happening in the world right now, like you said, that China is playing hardball, you would think, given the choice, if you can have the choice of, of having your allies of the United States, Australia, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, uh, that is a strong... Consortium—that's a united front to, to to fight back against China.
7: Uh, sure, I mean I think that the, the, these are long-term allies; they're long-term relationships. Uh, now, plenty of people um, who are talking uh, to Justin Trudeau and who are whispering in his ear um, uh, are also trying to, um, you know, reinforce the importance of the relationship with China. It is a very important relationship, but it's it certainly pales in comparison to the relationship that we already have. Uh, with with the United States, for instance, you know um, where where trade dwarfs uh, that with, that we have with China, and also too, you know, you've got the 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 this likeness of mind uh, between these Western democracies like Australia, New Zealand, and Britain, and the United States and Canada. You know, there's a lot in common that we have.
0: All right, uh, Ian, we will leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this.
7: Thank you very much, Jules.
0: All right, Ian Young, based in Vancouver, correspondent with the South China Morning Post. You can read that latest piece in the current edition of the South China Morning Post. Well, earlier today, the Delta Police Department sent out a tweet with a note attached to it, a little visual written in red ink saying, please don't leave me in a car, in a hot car, XOXO with a paw print on the letter that was made up. But it was to bring more attention to the fact, as Delta Police said in the tweet, the sun is here. So is our reminder not to leave kids or pets unattended in hot vehicles officers were called yesterday to a dog left in the front seat with the window open just a crack unfortunately the owner had done this before insert eye roll emoji so she got a 200 hundred dollar ticket so we thought let's talk about this unfortunately we have to talk about it every year and Lori Chordick joins me on the line general manager of communications at the BC SPCA Lori thanks so much for being here
5: Oh, thank you for this reminder because, as you say, the weather is heating up and it's so important that people uh, don't leave their pets in cars. We, we just see disastrous situations every summer when this happens.
0: Uh, it's unfortunate, and I know people have been complaining about the weather and we finally have some higher temperatures, but with that comes, unfortunately, stories like this. Uh, have you heard of other cases or has it been an issue this summer with people leaving pets in their cars or their vehicles? Well it's certainly
5: been happening as you mentioned we haven't had the best um, the best weather this year so our calls are actually um, down quite a bit we've received about 200 calls to rescue animals from hot cars. Normally this time of year, unfortunately, it's up about 900. So the good news, the calls are down, but I think that's had to do more with the weather than the fact that people haven't been uh, leaving them. So we just want to remind people um, just how quickly something can happen when they leave their pet in a hot car. I think that people, obviously, they love their pets. That's why they're taking them with them. They they want to spend time But people don't realize that it really doesn't take very long for an animal in a car to reach a point where they're suffering heat stroke and in some cases even death.
0: And good news, I suppose, that the number of cases is down, but that's still 200 calls for people that have left pets in their vehicles. And in this case, I think what was more disturbing with this tweet from Delta Police was this was a person they had dealt with before. They She had been ticketed, not maybe not ticketed, but she'd certainly been warned, or he had been warned before not to do this. Uh, do you think a $200 ticket is enough of a deterrent?
2: Well, and I think people really
5: should you know, get a strong message about this because this is something that's completely preventable and sadly we do get calls that we go immediately to help and it's too late and the animal has perished and these are deaths that don't need to happen. this completely preventable tragedy so I think we really do have to send a strong message and I think what people don't realize is that um, dogs cannot release heat from their body in the same way as humans can. We can sweat and we can reduce our heat but animals can't release heat from their body. So even, you know, just a few minutes in a car, their bodies are heating up very quickly to the point where they are suffering um, life-threatening symptoms from from that. So even with parked in the shade windows rolled down it's still such a danger for pets uh,
0: and do people do you find people are doing that thinking oh well if i find a shady spot to, and like you said leave the windows down a crack and i'm just running in for 5 minutes
5: that it'll be okay that's the story that we hear all the time and i think that's what people obviously if people are taking their pets with them when they're going out they're not wanting to do deliberate harm to their to their animals they love them they want to be with them and that's what's so sad is that people are inadvertently putting their pets in such danger and it really doesn't take very long and you can as i say be in the shade your windows can be rolled down and it doesn't matter
0: Uh, Are things changing at all, do you think, as far as where pets and dogs in particular are allowed to go with people so that people can take them out? And even if you're doing a day of errands, say you can take them with you? Well, we... Certainly
5: do encourage stores to have areas where people can come and keep their pets. And I know um, the SBCA on Salt Spring Island, we do a, a daycare at the their very popular Saturday market. We do an outdoor daycare so people can come, bring their pets, leave them with us. And it's just by donation to help other homeless animals. And we really encourage more and more places to provide those kind of services, but the reality is they don't exist everywhere. So the only 100% way that you can keep your pet safe is to leave them at home and they'll just be so much happier at home you know, safe and cool.
0: Um, if somebody is in that situation, if they've they've done this, if a pet has been left in a vehicle and is showing signs of distress, and again, not encouraging anybody to do that, but mistakes do happen. What should someone do if they find that their dog has overheated?
5: Um, they should take their pet to a, a veterinarian immediately. So there's there's clear signs of heat stroke. So people should. Um, see if their pet is exaggerated, kind of panting, uh, if their pulse is very rapid, if they're salivating, um, if they're having muscle tremors or very weak. um, Usually in the final stages, there's convulsions and vomiting and then collapse. So if their pets have any of those symptoms, they should get them to to a vet immediately.
0: And is there a misconception out there or do people think it's different if you have a, a big dog as opposed to a small dog?
5: It it really doesn't matter. Although senior animals and those with which kind of have the the flatter faces like pugs or French bulldogs, those animals are even more danger because they have difficulties breathing at the best of times. So animals with flatter faces really do experience more challenges in hot weather. But it it really doesn't matter. Um, there are certain as I say, ages and breeds that are in more danger, but it affects all animals.
0: All right. And you kind of touched on this, but again, we were talking about the case in Delta where the woman was given a $200 ticket. Um, Unfortunately, we've had stories in the past uh, thinking of the the six dogs that perished in the back of a truck. Uh, Can somebody be charged or can you be charged with animal cruelty if you're
5: found to have done this? Absolutely. And we certainly have had cases of Um, where individuals have been charged with animal cruelty for causing, allowing their animal to be in distress. All right. Uh, Laurie, we will leave
0: it there for today, but always a good reminder uh, for people. Thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today.
5: Thank you so much for getting the word out. We really appreciate it. All right. Uh, Lori
0: Chordick, General Manager of Communications with the BC SPCA. Well, during this pandemic, you've likely found yourself, at least more in the beginning, using plastic bags, reusable single-use plastic items. Maybe you used to take your reusable cup to a coffee shop. The coffee shop likely closed down. But even when it reopened, that cup probably wasn't allowed back as we continue dealing with COVID-19. Well, my next guest says maybe we need to rethink this. And Lily Woodbury joins me, chapter manager at Mm Surfrider Pacific. Uh, Lily, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, Jill. Thanks for having us on your show. Uh, What are your concerns about uh, the pandemic and the increased kind of use and I suppose return to single-use plastics?
8: Yeah. So, you know, our concern really centers around the fact that we are in a plastics crisis right now in Canada and all around the world. And, you know, pre-pandemic, we were really making headway on this issue as the federal government had released their um, plans for the zero plastic waste. And, you know, with that, they're going to ban a comprehensive list of single-use plastics by 2021. The provincial government, they are going to announce this spring their plans for the Clean BC Actions Plan. So things were looking promising. Things were lining up. And then, as we know, the pandemic hit and really threw everything into array. And what happened at this time was that a lot of misinformation started circulating stating that uh, reusable vessels were not as safe as, or sanitary as single-use items. And we all know how the narrative goes here as we visited our grocery stores and coffee shops and other retail stores is that um, they prohibited us from using our reusable vessels and returned to the single-use.
0: Right. And you can hardly blame people, though, especially in the beginning when we didn't know how long the coronavirus could live on on a surface. We didn't know if it could be transmitted that way. You could hardly blame people for wanting to take that step if it meant you could protect yourself against possibly being exposed or getting the virus.
8: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jill. And, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, we really wanted to navigate this very carefully because people's health, is of the utmost importance. But as we know, since the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of science has come out to say that that, uh, COVID, the virus, lives longer on plastic than any other type of material. Plastic and stainless steel are the longest. We also know now uh, from a recent report that was released by Greenpeace uh, with over 125 health experts and scientists from 19 countries that... uh, systems for reusable containers are proven to be safe and sanitary, and there are still zero cases of fomite transmission.
0: And how do you make sure though, people are are so using reusable containers? I mean, we've shifted so quickly to people using hand sanitizer and to wiping down tables for people that have returned to restaurants. How do you make sure that people bringing in reusable containers are cleaning them and that it is sanitary?
8: Yeah, it's a really great question. I think you bring up a great point in that, you know, we quickly shifted to adapt to the pandemic. We need to shift again to protect the environment, you know, and both of these things are intimately connected. So the ways that we need to ensure that people can do this is by having government, you know, support by banning single-use plastics so that, you know, people cannot rely on these items in the first place, you know, and then with along with proper education, people will be washing their reusables and making it easier for people to do this at businesses if they haven't done so already. Businesses can also deploy the contactless transfer system with, you know, whether it's groceries, drinks, food, et cetera. And this has actually been used in a lot of countries before the pandemic, such as Australia. And this is a really smart way to go, you know, if you're concerned about the vessel not being super clean. But I think what's really important to note is that a lot of the focus on this issue and so many environmental, it's put on the consumer, you know, and, you it's really not reasonable to expect everyone to live zero waste when the cheapest food is packaged in plastic when you know there's tons of communities, mainly First Nations in Canada, that don't have access to potable water. Of course, they're going to rely on bottled water. you know, and this is why we need public policy to turn the tide on this issue. We need you know Canada to keep stay on track with their action plastics action plan, you know, obviously banning some use plastics, but also, Um, implementing extended producer responsibility to make all the producers of these products and packaging responsible for the end of life, not the consumer. So we truly have a lot of, we all have a part to play, but it's been too heavily rested on the consumer. Uh, What about the
0: issue of medical equipment? Because that's been getting a ton of uh, focus as well in that obviously we need medical equipment. It can't be reused. That's not deemed safe. But now a lot of people are also using reusable masks and wearing those masks when going into public and also using some of those supplies.
8: Yeah, it's another great question. So it depends on the health authority and where you're living. I know some health authorities for, uh, you know, certain health outlets, they require them to use the single-use mask and gloves. Others say, you know, you don't have to wear a mask or you can use reusable gloves, reusable masks. Where you're permitted to use the reusable, use the reusable. And, you know, it's also important to note that, you know, plastics are a petroleum product that's a finite resource. You know, if anything, whilst we're finding new systems for medical equipment, or even if we don't, we need to be saving that resource for what for what it really matters for medical equipment, um, you know, and not for items that we have readily accessible alternatives for.
0: Uh, And how does Canada rate, do you think, as far as uh, around the world and other countries? Because it seems like having traveled to many other countries, it seems like we do a pretty good job. Even if we're using single-use plastics here, it seems like we do a good job of recycling and making sure they don't end up in the ocean. So how do we rate compared to other countries?
8: I don't think very well, you know, considering only 9% of plastics are recycled in Canada. And even for the plastics that are recycled, they depreciate in value every time they are recycled. So, you know, again, and that's why recycled content standards, that's why EPR is is super important to see that, you know, when we're recycling these plastics, okay, they can actually become part of a circular economy. And I think when you go to different countries that maybe are developing and do not have... Um, you know, as robust waste management systems or the political will, you know, it's often cases that multinational corporations are targeting those countries with all of their cheap plastic goods. You know, a lot of these countries that may appear better were not relying on plastics until the indus- until industrialized nations like U.S., Canada, and Europe, you know, started relying on this and really made it part of a global phenomena. You know, furthermore, Canada has been has been sending. Waste to countries like the Philippines, Malaysia, you know, for them to deal with instead of dealing with it within our own borders, which really blew up um, last year. And uh, and then this plastic waste and pollution got added to the Basel Convention. So, yeah, overall, I don't think we're doing very well, but we have the resource to do so and we need to do so. All right, uh,
0: Lily, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us on. Lily Woodbury is a chapter manager at Surfrider Pacific.